0: Amen. Thank you so much, music team, for pointing us to Christ. You may not have noticed, but that last song, Justified, was actually written by David. And it's based on the five solas of the Reformation. Some of you may have tracked that if you are familiar with that. Faith alone. Salvation comes by faith alone. Through grace alone, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So that was the five solas that came out of the Reformation, which we would say was really a recovery of the biblical doctrine and understanding of salvation. So David wrote that song a few years ago as a reflection on those five solas and just a great... uh, Great reminder and a great way to teach truth. We talk all the time about music and what we sing, and music's so important around here for us because it engages your emotions, yes, but it's also a way to teach truth. And so we believe the words that we sing are very important. It's been well said that you don't, go home, you don't go home humming the sermon afterwards. You go home humming the songs. That's what tends to stick in your mind. And so we think it's very significant and important. And I'm grateful uh, for David and the ministry of the others that work so hard to serve us and make things happen. The guys in the back, the guys that are here early, uh, we just enjoy that so much. It's such a good time for us to come together today. One other uh, pre sermon note, just wanted to make a note on our congregational members' meeting this afternoon. And this may be a new concept for some of you. Maybe you come from traditions where you didn't do things like that. Maybe you come from traditions where you did have congregational meetings and you are running as far as you can as soon as the service concludes because you've seen these go very poorly. And I have as well. And so I want to assure you these are very encouraging times for our church family. And I would encourage you, especially if you're a member here, to, to stay, uh, to stay and to listen, uh, to take it in, to ask questions. Um, you are, yeah, for lack of a better term, this isn't the best analogy, but maybe it'll work, you're a shareholder, all right, here with us, you're a shareholder, you're part of this, if you're a member here at Sunrise Community Church. And just by way of, this may be a little bit more technical than we typically would get into in this setting, but I just want to say it because I know not everybody will be around this afternoon um, the term that we use to talk about church government is polity, so we have a, a polity here it uh, just means our system of government, and our system of decision making here at the church we are what 's called elder led and congregational ruled all right that 's a little bit different than maybe some other contexts and different ways that people do it over the years. Um, what that means is that we have elders and we 're going to talk you 'll hear from your elders this afternoon a little bit more. We have elders who are decision makers for the church but we also have certain things that the congregational ultimately is responsible for. So we are elder led, we lead as elders of the church, but we are congregational ruled, which means you make decisions. Uh, and there's, that's why we have a vote on things like our budget, if we wanted to buy or sell property, if we wanted to bring on a new pastor. Those are decisions that are placed in the hands of the congregation. So it's an, it's an actual authority that we invest into the congregation. And so just want you to know that. That's why we do these meetings. Uh, we think they're an important exercise for us and we are in we are at a peaceful time here at the church and we are so grateful for that. But we need to have certain muscles that we've exercised and reflexes that we've we've gone through before just in case there are ever an issue at the church that we had to deal with, um, we need to go through that process together. And so some, some may see this as a little bit laborious and a little bit painstaking, and, and we understand that. Um, we really do, and we try to streamline it best we can, but we just want to explain a little bit as to why we do what we do. Um, and I just think it's an important time in the life of our church, and so that will be immediately following the service. And I'd planned to go a little bit shorter today, but we can all hope. All right. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. All right, well, that was part one. Let's get into the book of Proverbs today. We're finishing up our talk on money money and wealth from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this topic, and we've tried to, to distill it down into just a few points. So, we started this last week, and just a, one other note just to let you know what's going on with with me. And uh, I've been teaching a class, uh, started this last week, teaching a class on wisdom literature at Christ Theological Seminary. Uh, Christ Theological Seminary is a seminary that started about four years ago under the leadership of Brian Sheely at Riverbend Community Church. It's a church down in Ormond Beach, Just north of Daytona, about an hour 15 or so uh, from us. And they started a seminary a few years ago, and they meet it in the evenings. So it's Tuesday and Thursday nights from 6 until about 9.45 at night. So I've been teaching a class there on wisdom literature, and this has coincided really well with our Proverbs study. And so my heart and mind has been very much in the wisdom literature and looking at the poetic books of the Bible. And so I want, we're, I want to bring a little bit of that here to you this morning and just to remind us of the structure of what's going on in the book of Proverbs. I was talking to the students about the book of Proverbs and I was telling them about preaching through Proverbs. And we're such a verse-by-verse a verse church. And so our pattern is we start with the first verse and we end with the last verse. And that's just what we do. And so somebody asked me the question at class this week, um, how is your congregation taking it? Because it's a little bit more topical as we look at Proverbs. I said, well, I think you'd have to ask them, I said, I think some of them feel like they're in the middle of the ocean without a life jacket and just sort of treading water because there's so much security, I think in sermon listening and feeling the, there's verse one, there's verse two, there's verse three, and you just sort of, you're at home. And I know some of you are smiling because you feel that. You feel a little bit like, where is this thing going? And, but just to remind you, Proverbs is structured very, very differently than other books. So it's very hard to do a study like that because it's a little bit all over the place, the book of Proverbs. So here's how Proverbs is structured, If you're curious in this, there are really what most scholars recognize as seven collections within the collection of Proverbs. You have chapters one through nine, and we looked at a few passages within that, and it's really a plea for wisdom. This is why you need to listen to wisdom. And then you have collections 2 through 4, which are all from Solomon, but delineated off by markers in the text. And these are the proverbs, the classic proverbs, what you think of when you think of a proverb. We use proverbs all the time. We've talked about that a number of times. They are still a popular way to communicate. And this is, this is just part of language. It always has been. So they are the, the proverbs, which we'll look at more today. And they're mostly thematic. Um, and so we kind of grab a thread and we start to pull and we looked at things like speech. Uh, We looked at, we're looking at money right now. We looked at pride and humility and things like that, that we can just pull a string and see what Proverbs has to say about that. Then there's a couple of other contributors to the book of Proverbs. The men of Hezekiah, as noted in chapter 25, collected Solomon's Proverbs. Agor gives us Proverbs 30. We uh, quoted from him last week, and then Lemuel wrote the last one, Proverbs 31, particularly about the Proverbs 31 woman, that very intimidating lady that you used to hear about on Mother's Day. And you go home really guilty because you don't feel like the Proverbs 31 woman. We're going to talk about her another day, but I, uh, she's there for a reason. And we'll, we'll get into that more later on. So this is what's going on in Proverbs. And so Proverbs is structured very differently than other books. And that's part of the reason why we're looking at it the way that we are. I'm planning on looking, finishing our study of money this week. Um, next week, what I'd like to do is I want to take a week, and I want to look at what we learn about God from Proverbs. All right. Some have accused Proverbs of being secular. Right? You don't need God for this. And I think it's, very, it's, a, it's actually a very different story when we embed Proverbs into the bigger story and what's going on in the Bible, the redemptive story of the Scripture, and particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and we're going to see some connections there. So I'm looking forward to that next week. Um, we are planning to start the Gospel of Luke in December, and that will lead us into the Christmas season, and we'll be in the Gospel of Luke for a while, taking some breaks here and there. I've got that plotted out uh, pretty much through May um, at this point, where we're going to be. I don't have the sermons written for those. Don't, no, don't be too impressed. I've just outlined it. All right? So that's the plan uh, for the next little bit. So let's review what we talked about last time. Let's review. Last time, we looked at what Proverbs has to say about gaining wealth. And some of these may have been kind of shocking to see. And I think many of us, we grew up in a context and culture where we really want to distance ourselves from what We would call the health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel. If you just love the Lord and send your money to particular TV preachers, well, you're going to get your blessing tenfold and it's all going to come back to you. And we've seen this abused in so many contexts. And so I think many of us are really nervous when we start talking about the Bible actually has some things to say about how you can earn, how you can gain in life. But it actually does. Proverbs has quite a bit to say about that. And so this was what we looked at last week, and this is where I think it's helpful, again, to remind you, what Proverbs is doing, it's what we could call a character-consequence sort of relationship. If you're this kind of person, you're going to get this kind of result. It's just typically how life works. That's how Proverbs is structured. If you're a good student who studies hard, stays ahead, uh, works ahead, keeps up with with the tests, the assignments, you're generally going to get better grades, right? Right? We all know that's true. If you're a good worker, you pay attention, you actually read the boss's emails, you open everything up and actually read it, you look through it, you're generally going to be a better employee. You're generally going to get better raises. It's just how the world works, and the Lord has designed it this way. And so, what Proverbs is doing is tapping into this is how the world operates. So, if you want to be a better employee, if you want to be a better earner, these principles will help you avoid being lazy. Avoid being negligent. Avoid shortcuts, the get-rich-quick kind of schemes. Avoid dishonest gain. Don't steal from people. Don't take advantage of the poor. And avoid foolishness. Don't be a fool. And you'll just generally do better in life. It's just self-evident, and it's true. Proverbs has a lot to say about money, as I mentioned earlier. And it's mostly positive. But it also has some warnings with it as well. It also has a little bit to say about the poor. And if you just ask Proverbs the question, is it better to be poor or rich? The answer is the poor have a hard time in life. And we all know that, right? Ask a poor person. It's hard. It's rough. Proverbs 14, 20. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Well, this is a double-edged sword here, of course, because sometimes the rich have friends because they're rich, because people want their resources, and exposes something about human nature. But just to focus on the first part, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor. It just kind of happens, and it's sad, and it shouldn't be that way. But it's hard. Very similar thought. Proverbs 19.4, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. If the co-worker in the office happens to win the lottery all of a sudden everybody's their best buddy, right? Hey, friend. So, you remember back then and you try to buddy up to this person who has wealth. So, this is the Proverbs perspective. So, it's largely positive, but it's not 100% positive. There's some warnings that come with money and wealth. So, we're going to restrict ourselves mostly to Proverbs this morning, although we are going to venture out a little bit here and there and talk about This uh, talk about money and the dangers that it potentially brings. All right, so we talked about gaining wealth. That was last week. This week, we're going to cover these other three. Appraising wealth, using wealth, and then finally trusting wealth. Appraising wealth. How should we appraise what we have? Proverbs is generally the same attitude that we have towards money. Money is good. But it's not everything. We make jokes about this all the time. People write songs about this. Can't buy happiness with money, but it'll buy me a boat. Great country song. Or Hank Williams from some of y'all's generation. Money can't buy you happiness, but neither can poor old me. Or the Beatles, can't buy me love. Y'all are going to have that stuck in your head the rest of the day. Catchy little tune, but it's actually a pretty serious message. Can't buy me love. Extremely wealthy people writing songs about how wealth can't actually do what they thought it could. They find that it's empty at the end of the day. It happens all the time. So what are the problems with money? We're going to look at a few of these money problems. There's opportunity, but there's also liability that comes with money. I want to start out actually stepping outside of Proverbs for just a second. And let's look at a verse, a couple of verses that we saw in our study of Ecclesiastes a couple of years ago. And we have many people that weren't with us during the Ecclesiastes study. So let's review what Ecclesiastes has to say. And I really think when you look at Proverbs as a book... You really should read it in light of the other books, of the wisdom literature, which what I mean by that is read Proverbs in light of Ecclesiastes. Read Ecclesiastes in light of Proverbs. They're communicating different messages of the same reality. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10 says this, "'He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity.' We just, let's just camp on that just for a second he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income this also is vanity have you ever met anybody will just you can just feel free to think about your friend here for a minute has your friend ever thought if i could just get to this level of earning then i would be happy has your friend ever thought that i'm talking about you i'm just using friend like yeah okay if your friend's ever thought that, you're falling into the trap of Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves money won't be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth with his income. If I could just hit this level of earning, then I would be really happy. If I could just have this thing, then I would be happy. If I could just have a car. I just want a car. Just a car that runs. That's all I want. It's like the 16-year-old's dream. You get a car in a little while, and you're like, eh, is kind of old. Yeah, kind of not pretty. Get great gas mileage, and you you need a different car and a different car, and apply it in any area of life. It just keeps on and on and on and on. Solomon's tapping into that. He who loves money won't be satisfied with money. Well, he would know. He was the wealthiest man that ever lived. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. (laughs) Isn't that funny? And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So the more you have, the more vultures you have that are gathered around you and they use up your resources, all you get to do is look at them and watch everybody else have a good time. That's what you have. And then in verse 12, this is so profound, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. When you got your first job, it was probably an hourly job and it's probably a job that you could go do for a little while and you could go home and you probably didn't think about your work all that much. I remember my first, I I did a lot of odd jobs, uh, cut some yards and things like that when I was a teenager. My first real job where I actually had to go in, clock in, that sort of thing, I worked at a metal recycling plant. And that was an experience for me as a teenager. And showing up as a young guy out in the metal recycling yard, and there are tons of heavy things that just have to be moved from one place to another, so that was pretty much my job all day. Hey, Alan, come here. You know, pick up that piece of iron over there and put it over here. That's what I did for the summer, moved heavy stuff. One of the guys that worked there one time, we were clocking out and going home, and he looked over at me, he goes, you are the dirtiest person in this whole recycling yard, I said, it didn't start out that way this morning. (laughs) Like, it's because I get to do everything else that none of y'all want to do. It was my first experience, really, the clock in, clock out, make a living. And I thought it was great. I was making eight bucks an hour, which like at that time was fantastic money. And I thought I thought I was living the big life um, at that point. But, you know, as I think back on that, I would go to work and I would go home and I really didn't care what happened at the recycling plant. I really didn't care. I would go home. I I was not daydreaming about, you know, the piece of sheet metal that I cut with the torch that day or what it was going to be turned into, or are we saving the environment with all these cans that I collected? I no thought of that. Just, I, I went to work, I got some money and I left. And then you move on in life, right? Next job was a sales job, outside sales at that. So you're always chasing down leads. There's always another person to call. There's always more paperwork. There's reports. There's expenses. Then you end up in ministry. There's counseling, pastoral check-ins, events, preparing lessons, reading books. All of a sudden, the clock in, clock out thing just isn't quite there anymore. And many of you know exactly what I mean by that. As your jobs have progressed, you suddenly take it home with you. That's what Solomon is getting at. Sweet, is the sleep of a laborer. The one that just goes and works for a while and goes home, he, he's conked out, not worried about it. But the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. The more stuff you have, the more things that you have to worry about. A few of our uh, the, uh, tycoons of early American history talked about this. Andrew Carnegie said, Millionaires seldom smile. Millionaires who laugh... Are rare. My experience is that wealth is apt to take the smiles away. Isn't that interesting? Andrew Carnegie. Henry Ford. Henry Ford says, "I was happier when doing a mechanic's job." said that later in his life. Amazing, huh? William Vanderbilt, incredibly wealthy at one point in his life. He says, "The care of 200 million dollars I don't know what that would be in today's money, but a lot more than 200 million. The care of $200 million is too great a load for any brain or back to bear. It is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Isn't that interesting? The more you have, the less sleep you get, the more stresses you have in your life. So there's opportunity, of course, with wealth and money. There's also a lot of liability to it, personal liability. This is stressing me out to have all this stuff. Many of you didn't care a thing about the stock market until you owned some stocks, then all of a sudden, it's like, what's that thing doing? What are they up to in Washington? Where, you, where you, this thing straightened out? Like, you didn't care if you don't have any money? So there's liability associated with that. Proverbs 13.8. Let's jump back into Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 8. This one's an interesting verse. Proverbs 13.8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. You know, kidnapping is a major issue in developing countries because they know that you have money and you can pay them off. It's a business, highly illegal, immoral, immoral, terrible, reprehensible. It's a business all the same. And this is what some people do to make money. It's really become an epidemic in places. People don't steal poor people, though. Why? You're not going to get any money for them. It's not worth it. Like, why would I do that? We don't get anything for them. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. But a poor man, he doesn't hear a threat. Nobody cares. There's liability with having stuff. So we're starting to see that, yes, Proverbs is positive on wealth, on earning. You should. You should be a part of the system. You should be a part of making money, yes, but there's also some liability that comes with it. Let's continue on. There's also a liability in overworking. Overworking, go to Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5, 23, 4, and 5. As you're finding that, I want to say that there's a balance, and as we've mentioned a number of times in Proverbs, there's a certain fittingness to a proverb to a particular person. Not every proverb applies equally to every single person. Some of you may need to hear the message of Proverbs 6, that you need to stop being lazy and you need to go to work so that poverty doesn't come on you. There's others who may need to hear the message of Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. It says this, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. I just want to stop right there for a second. Some of you need to hear that. Be discerning enough to desist desist. Be discerning enough to stop. Just stop. And then look at the danger. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. (laughs) For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. (laughs) The money that you thought you were going to get, it just sprouts wings and goes away. Be discerning enough to desist. Yes, work hard, give it your best, do everything you can, but then you got to stop. You got to close the laptop got to put the phone away, stop answering it, go for a walk, go to church, leave it in the car. This is where Proverbs are so profoundly helpful. And again, some of you may need a nudge towards productivity. Others may need a nudge towards ratcheting it back and being wise enough to desist and stop. This may be particularly applicable to some. Some of you have a an hourly type of job, maybe you're not hourly employee necessarily, but there's a certain amount of time that you're going to spend in the office, it's really not negotiable, and you just, you do what you do, and you go home, uh, I get it, there's others of you, maybe in here, maybe if you're a little bit more entrepreneurial, maybe if you have your own business, maybe uh, you have a side hustle of some variety that you keep up with, and you, you have almost endless opportunity to work, almost endless opportunity you can always make another dollar, always take on another client, always finish a little bit more paperwork, always read another thing, always read another article. There's just never-ending amount of things to do. You have to be willing to desist. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Sometimes you just need to stop because it's going to fly away. Wealth doesn't last forever as soon as you think you're secure, you really aren't. How many people had their worlds turned upside down in 2008, 2009? Anybody? How many people had them turned upside again, down again? 2020? 2020, 2021? Maybe even currently still? You thought you're very secure, and then all of a sudden it changes overnight. It flies away like an eagle. Now the admonition isn't, well, I just need to accumulate a lot more then. The admonition is, "Stop trusting it." Stop trusting in your wealth. You can't. It's a liability. So, appraising wealth, money problems. There's opportunity. There's liability. You have the danger of overworking. What else is wrong or the problems with money? We need to understand that money has limits. Wealth has limits. There are a lot of things in the Bible, Proverbs in particular here, that are talked about as being more important, more significant, more valuable than having money. You would think in some with some today that money is just the ultimate thing. If you have a lot of money, well, then you are living your best life and there's nothing that could possibly go wrong. Oftentimes, the wealthy are very unhappy, though, as we've already seen with a few of the quotes that I gave you a minute ago. Let's read some of these. I'll just, I'm going to read through these fairly quickly and just make a few comments here and there. Money is less valuable than love, Proverbs 15, 16, and 17. It says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Some of you have experienced this. I've talked a couple of times about traveling overseas. Some of you have experienced this where you have a culture maybe and you're just served very, very little and there's so much joy and there's just something sweet about that. And maybe you've been in other places where you were served some extravagant meal or dinner and everybody's just grumpy and bitter. And I'm like, you know what? I'll take the dollar menu over living in this strife and eating the fattened ox. This feast... Many times, rich people are very unhappy, can lead to some colossal family battles. This is very appropriate as we move into the holiday season, as many of you will be interacting with family that you don't see a lot, and many times, the families that have the largest estates are the ones that are most at war. You ever notice that? There's a relationship there. There's a reason. Money is better, or love is better, better to have love than money. Humility. Proverbs sixteen nineteen. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Here again, there's an exception. Wealth and power, it does things to people, doesn't it? I don't know if you've ever had someone in your circle or sphere who suddenly became extremely wealthy. Did it change that person? Many people, it does. Not always. Many, many people it does. Better to be lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. And we've, I won't go back through all the Proverbs about pride, but Proverbs is very, very negative on pride. Next, peace. Very similar to what we saw in the first one with love. Peace. Better is a dry morsel with a quiet, that with quiet, Than a house full of feasting with strife. Isn't that a great one? Better is a dry morsel, just a just a little piece of bread that's just not even that good. With quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better to eat just a little piece of bread than be stuck in a house with a bunch of people that are angry, yelling, and mad at each other, but there's a lot of food around. Is it really worth it? Proverbs would say no. And then lastly, authenticity. Every now and then, there's a word that gets co-opted from us. I feel like authenticity maybe is one of those words, and I'm on a mission to claim it back. Authenticity. This word is a, it's a great word. It refers to just being authentic, being real. 13.7. This is a great proverb as well. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has nothing yet has great wealth you know one of the marks of childhood is playing pretend does anybody remember you probably don't remember like all the details of your childhood does anybody remember playing pretend you know, with a brother or sister, or maybe a cousin, friends at school. Let's pretend that you're the doctor and I'm the patient. Let's pretend that I'm the businessman and you're the you're, you know I'm working at the store and you're doing this. Let's pretend this. Let's pretend that. I remember that you know with my siblings. Uh, let's pretend this. Let's pretend that. Let's pretend this. Well, grownups kind of have a game of that too. It's called Let's pretend I'm really rich, and then others say, No, 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 no. I'm going to pretend I'm really poor actually. And it's kind of funny, because there's a big game of pretend going on in the world today. And we're kind of walking around going, are you pretending? (laughs) Are you actually that? One pretends to be rich, yet he doesn't actually have anything. Another pretends to be poor, and he has great wealth. The game of pretend never really stopped. We just stopped. We just changed what we're pretending about. There's two cautions here. One spends too much in efforts to impress people. They talk about money talk about investments, talk about whatever it is they talk about, they buy things, and they want everybody to look at them and go, oh, wow, they've really made it. They've accomplished things in their life. As my dad used to say, you buy things that you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't even like. Isn't it true? Let's pretend, let's just pretend I'm rich. They leverage themselves, take out massive amounts of debt, however they do it. They pretend to be rich, yet they don't really have anything. And then another pretends to be poor, yet he has great wealth. This is the blue-collar millionaires. Pretending to be poor, that's the opposite problem. Some, maybe even in the name of frugality and stewardship, hold on to their money, let other people foot the bills for their expenses when they're perfectly capable of paying for them themselves. It's just really another manifestation of the love of money. They just can't handle letting go of their money. So they pretend to be poor. Yeah, can't afford that, can't do this, can't do that. When in reality, they can. They're playing a game of pretend just on the opposite side of it. Being a good steward doesn't mean just being cheap, good stewards spend well too. Money's valuable, has place. Proverbs is largely positive on it. But as we mentioned, it can be dangerous. My favorite illustration is the money is like nuclear power. Is it good or bad? Depends on who has it. Depends on if it's on the tip of a warhead or if it's powering a city. Depends on who has it and who's leveraging it and what they're trying to do with it and how much of that has control on their own heart, the cart before the horse. So money problems. It's less valuable than love, humility, peace, and being genuine, authentic Next, let's move on. Let's talk about how to use our money, use our wealth. There's a lot to say on this, and there's a lot of proverbs on this. I'm going to restrict myself mostly to proverbs, although I would love to take a big, big sweep of what the entire Bible has to say about this, because there's a lot. Let's talk about using wealth. I've mentioned this a couple of times already Proverbs 3 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Now he says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits. The first fruits are very significant because you don't you're not assured that the rest of the fruits are coming. So the first fruits, the best. Bring those first, honor the Lord first with those. Then in turn, he'll bless you. He'll keep filling the barn. Proverbs eleven twenty four. 24, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. It's going to catch up to you in the end. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. We could probably go around and have personal testimonies this morning. In fact, I caught up with a few of you after and heard some stories about this about times in your life when maybe you didn't have much and you chose to give and watching the return on that, either in a material way or you receive some sort of a, a, a significant blessing back to you. It's just amazing how often the Lord does that. Proverbs 22.9, very similar. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. We're going to talk a lot about the poor so there's this concept of sowing and reaping. If you put your resources out there, the Lord will honor that. Now, let me remind you again, Proverbs, character consequence, typically works this way. It's not an ironclad guarantee. It's letting us know this is how the world works. Also, let's talk about now the poor. And I've called this, your concern for the poor is diagnostic, meaning your, your heart your reaction to those with less is really diagnostic of what's going on in your own heart. Let me just read a number of these Proverbs for us, and we'll land on a couple of these. Whoever despises his neighbor and a sinner is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. That's 1421. 1431. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You oppress a poor man, you insult his maker, who happens to be the maker of you as well. It's an insult to God to insult the poor man. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. This is 17.5. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. If you're just relishing the fact that other people are having a really tough time, you will not go unpunished. Verse 19, or 19.17, 17, sorry, Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Generous to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. You are God's vessel and tool for providing for that particular person. That's what the proverb says. 21.13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Don't close your ear to the cry of the poor. 22.22. 22. Do not rob the poor, because he's poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. The Lord will take up their case. Don't take advantage of the poor. Now, this is all nestled within a larger Old Testament context. And there are so many verses in the Old Testament, and the prophets in particular, about how to treat and how to understand the poor amongst them. It's even codified into the law. You may be familiar with this. When they reaped the fields, when they harvested the fields, they were supposed to leave the corners of the field. Why? So that the poor could come along and collect what was left. And so it was built into Israel's society. The prophets talk a lot about this. Isaiah, Amos in particular, if you're looking for one smaller prophet, shorter prophet that you can get your mind around, read Amos and just ask the question, how does God want people to interact with the poor? Well, read Amos. You might say, "Well, that's that's Old Testament, right? We're in a New Testament now. We don't have all that kind of stuff, do we?" Well, actually, yeah, a lot of it. A few. Jesus talked about caring for the poor, caring for the least of these. I'll read you just a few verses here. This is Matthew twenty-five forty-four. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? So Jesus says, you didn't didn't care for me. You didn't care for me when I was in need. And they said, well, we never saw you. Like you, you didn't have that. That didn't happen to you. And Jesus said, then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. To serve those underprivileged is to serve Christ, caring for the least of these. It's diagnostic. James 2, 14 through 18. I'll start reading verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things for which they needed, what good is that? This is a section on faith and works. Like, hey, Chilly out there. Bet you're cold. Have a good day. Hope you get warm. What is that? So faith also by itself does not have works, is dead. What kind of faith is that? It's not faith. First John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide with him? It's rhetorical. You're not meant to answer that. It doesn't. How can you possibly say that you love the Lord when you have no regard for this other person? I think this is exactly, I think they're tapping into the wisdom of Proverbs here. The one who despises the poor despises his maker, which happens to be the maker of us all. How can you do that? You can't. Galatians 2.10, this was interesting because context really isn't about caring for the poor. Context is about the purity of the gospel and the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church, bouncing off of a decision that was made in Acts 15 about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ, telling them you don't have to be Jewish to be a part of the body of Christ. You have to believe in the covenant promises. And part of that ruling comes down and Paul is asked in that ruling, only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. He's like, Well, of course you would. And I was all too eager to do that. Significant conversation. It's significant that it's mentioned there in the context of the purity of the gospel. So, Proverbs has a lot to say about this, about using our resources well to help others, giving, sharing, all of that. Let's move on to this last point, and we'll come back and make a couple of application points. Trusting in wealth. I mentioned this earlier and last week, so I won't spend a ton of time on it, but I'm going to key in on just this last proverb. I would encourage you to maybe write those down, or I'll send them to you if you want to do that. Many of you take pictures a lot of times of the slides. I always just want to stop and smile, but I don't do that, So, but that's fine. You can take pictures of the slides if that helps you, but I'm always glad to email them too if you want them. Uh, Proverbs 11.4. Says this: Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. All right, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, what is the what are the riches that don't profit? What is this day of wrath that's coming? And for Christians, we kind of want to jump to the end of the story, which is understandable. The day of wrath, well, that's the day of judgment. Riches don't profit you there. It's true. We'll get there, but probably in the context and the flow of thought here in Proverbs, there's probably a little bit more of an immediacy to this as well. The day of wrath could be the day of sickness. It could be the day when a robber comes and tries to take your stuff. There's a lot of different options for what this day day of wrath is. Sickness, perhaps. I remember hearing about a number of years ago now, Steve Jobs I heard his cancer had returned, founder of Apple, extremely wealthy, and he would eventually die from that cancer, and I thought, you know, all the money in the world that he has, all the technology, like, didn't do a thing. Can't stop this from happening. Riches don't profit in that day. So I do think there's an element of this to final judgment. You get the point. You stand before the Lord, and you stand before the Lord, as one generation would say, without your checkbook. Now, for a younger generation, we don't do all that no more, writing checks and stuff. Without your bank account, without your debit card, without Apple Pay, you can't pay anybody off on the last day. You stand before the Lord by yourself, and your wealth won't matter in that day. Riches won't profit you on that day. John Rockefeller, he was asked one time, how much is enough? He said, just a little bit more. Towards the end of his life, he said this, I've made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. I would barter them all for the days that I sat on an office stool in Cleveland and counted myself rich on $3 a week. Later, his accountant was asked the question, how much did John D. leave after he died? His accountant's response was classic. He left all of it. He left it all, and you're going to leave it all too. And one day, we're going to stand before the Lord, and you are not going to have a bank account to bail you out. There is no credit. There is no card you can swipe on that day. You stand before the Lord completely, completely exposed. So we want to respond well to what the Lord has given us now. We don't put our trust and hope ultimately in what we have, our earning potential, our own giftedness. It's not going to do us any good on that last day. A few conclusions then. This will wrap up our talk on Proverbs and money. A few conclusions from Proverbs. One is this, money and wealth are not inherently evil. They're not necessarily evil. In fact, that can be a great leverage tool to do good. I'm glad that righteous people have money. They do good things with it. Very grateful for that. Number two, they are dangerous though. Money and wealth are dangerous. They have a number of liabilities and possibilities of this going wrong. Number three, good stewardship involves earning, saving, spending, and giving. All right. I think maybe sometimes in our world we hear the word stewardship and we obviously are automatically assume that just means keeping as much as I can. That's not stewardship. Stewardship involves all of these, earning, saving, spending, and giving. And then lastly, there are many things in life that are more valuable than money. We all know this to be true, but I pray that we would embrace it and understand there are so many more things in life than living for money. It is a dead-end road It's an eagle that will fly away. It will be gone before you know it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for your word, and what a profound section of scripture we have here in Proverbs. There's so much to it, the richness, we just can't even begin to get to the depths. So, Lord, we're grateful. Uh, Lord, we pray for our own hearts It's so hard for us to know sometimes, even our own affections. Help us to be open to your correction this morning from your truth. Maybe we're holding on to resources too tightly. Maybe we're not holding tightly enough. Maybe we're trusting in our resources when we really shouldn't be. Maybe you're going to use this to show us even our need for Christ. As you called some to follow you and said, Give up all your, your wealth. Give up all your riches and come follow me. Would we be willing to do that as well if that's what you called us to? And Lord, I pray that we would. There are many things in life more valuable than having resources and money and wealth. So Lord, we pray that you would use your word, expose our hearts, and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, we pray in Christ's name, amen.